Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 31. In last week's interview, there was a mention of how it's important to ask for what you want. I got a lot of feedback about that from y'all, so I figured, hey, give the people what they want, and let's talk about that in our open today. So off we go. Ask for what you want. Easier said than done, for sure. So when was the last time you asked for what you wanted? And I'm talking about asking for what you really wanted. Like, no inner monologue with yourself that goes like, ah, I'd like $1,000, but it probably don't have that much. And the other guy in town, who, I mean, they got to be talking to him, right? He would never charge that. And uh, my credit card bill's due next week, so I just need to book this one. I wonder if they have 700 bucks. I think that's fair. If I was in a band and somebody said 700 maybe 500 I'll do it for 250 I think everybody in the music industry has had a conversation with themselves like that at some point. Hopefully not as ridiculous as that one, though. So why? Why don't people always ask for what they really want? There's obviously some deep psychological stuff that somebody could get into about this, but that somebody, that ain't me. I took psychology in college because it was a required gen ed, and all I can tell you I learned is that my door lock double checking is 100% definitely OCD. No, but seriously. So I found an article with an interesting statistic. It was a Forbes article. And now I haven't double-checked it or sourced it, but here it is. 70% of employers expect a salary negotiation, even though that salary is not noted as being flexible. And according to their study, only 46% of men and 34% of women will actually negotiate. Now, I did see another article that said 51% of people would not negotiate a salary So we've got some variants at play. So let's be safe and let's summarize it down to the majority of jobs offered are expecting people to negotiate. And it's likely that less than half of the applicants will actually do it. Also, by the way, taking the risk of negotiating generally results in an average of 7.4% higher starting wage. So why is it that less than 50% of people are willing to go to bat for themselves? That's the question. And I think the reasoning probably taps into a lot of the stuff we've mentioned on this show previously. There's stuff like the fear of rejection or the fear of no, maybe the need to be right, or avoiding confrontation and staying comfortable, Uh, maybe being overly concerned with how people perceive you. And some of these we've unpacked before, but I'll just rip through them again. People don't like to be rejected or to lose. So how do you avoid being rejected or losing? Well, You don't take a chance, and you don't play the game. Don't enter your song in the contest or ask somebody to work together. If you do that, 
then you'll never get rejected. People like to be right. So if you don't stretch yourself or think big, then you'll never end up wrong. If you never tell yourself, I can get a number one song or I could manage that band, then you'll be totally right because you never tried and failed. So congrats. Uh, let's see. People avoid confrontation. Why? Because confrontation leads to the potential for rejection and being wrong. And we already know people don't like those. Confrontation generally appears when you're at the edge of your comfort zone. A confrontational conversation is one that you know is about something important. That's why there are stakes. Confrontation is defined as a face-to-face -face meeting. And most of the time, you'll find that you're face-to-face -face with an aspect of yourself that you may not like. So you'll definitely avoid it. And finally, people are over-concerned with how others perceive them. Well, if you haven't noticed, these are all actually about that to some extent. People don't want to be perceived as a loser or a failure or desperate or confrontational or whatever. You get the point. In the end, this is all about you and how you want to look to the world around you. You're not actually afraid of asking for what you want. Nobody's afraid of asking for what they want. They're afraid of not getting what they want and how it will make them feel and what people will think of them. And here is my super unscientific proof. When you're a kid, you probably asked for what you wanted all the time. Maybe you asked for a unicorn or a spaceship. You weren't concerned if it was possible or even reality. You weren't concerned with what anybody would think. You just knew you wanted that thing. So you asked for it. Or how about something like a lemonade stand or selling Girl Scout cookies or candy bars for a school fundraiser? You asked strangers for what you wanted as they passed by, and you were left unaffected by their answer. You asked the next person with the exact same excitement regardless. Because you had an innocence that prevented you from thinking about what the world thought of you. You weren't concerned with it. It's as you grow older that the need for acceptance from those around you starts to creep in and begins to weigh in on your decision making. And so I say, tap into a bit of that childhood self. Don't worry about what other people around you think of you. Be confident in your abilities, ask for what you want, and don't worry about what others are thinking. Because you know what? They aren't. Nobody is waiting for you to do something that they can judge you for. They're actually probably too busy worrying what you are thinking about them. So to circle back to the job negotiation example, if the majority of hiring companies are expecting a negotiation, then what makes you think they're going to judge you for it? They're waiting for you to do it. If you ask for what you want, and I'm not specifically talking about salary, I'm talking about anything. If you ask for what you want, I guarantee that the person you're asking it to, whether they give it to you or not, is definitely not going to go have a laugh over the water cooler with their coworkers about it. They'll actually probably respect you more for it. And you know what? Maybe it will even make you the front runner because it will separate you from the rest of the pack. So long story short, one sentence summary, I 100% guarantee you will never get any of the things that you don't ask for. Today's guest is producer, multi-instrumentalist, and recording artist Julie Catherine. Julie releases music under the alias I Am Snow Angel. It's an immersive blend of digital and organic elements, many of which are created from her own voice. In addition to producing and writing her own music, Julie also produces for various other artists, does sound design for Ableton, and is a co-founder of Female Frequency, which is a collective dedicated to empowering women in music. Super important work in today's music industry. So welcome to the show, Julie Catherine. Hey, Julie. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for coming on. 
I was thinking about it. We've worked together on, I don't know, like maybe 10 or 12 songs, and I don't think we've ever spoken. I was thinking about that too. The world is weird. You just have these email relationships with people and and now here we are. So I was yeah, I was I went for a walk today and I was actually was actually thinking, you know, what a weird world we live in. Cause I actually feel like I it just occurred to me today that we had never spoken. I know. So I guess we're so accustomed <laughs> to that. <laughs> I Not thought maybe when we did those first songs years ago, maybe we had, but I think it was still just emails. So odd. I mean, it's like uh Everybody's kind of used to the remote thing now, but um, how are you? You're outside the city, you're on the East Coast. Yeah, I'm north of New York City. We actually moved during the pandemic from Manhattan. We were up in Lake Placid near my parents, where I'm from, for several months and then ended up coming back down closer to the city. And so now I'm about an hour north of the city. Nice. Do you miss the concrete jungle or do you like the freedom of the of space? I'm I'm liking the freedom of space. Um, I also think, you know, all a lot of change happened in my life at once. You know, I had a baby, and then six months later, the pandemic hit, and so I think sometimes I have nostalgia for like the before times, meaning <laughs> yeah. like before the pandemic, before I was a mom, and I was really, you know, in it, but it's kind of more like nostalgia than it is missing because dragging a toddler around the city while wearing a mask, thats that sounds no. hard. Oh yeah, pushing strollers and everything. It would be a, be a disaster. I have no kids, so I can't, I can't pretend that I know, so. But, but you uh, know, the stroller, it's like hard to get around and elevators and all these other things that, um, you know, whatever. I'm lucky that we were, we were able to relocate and so far it's going pretty well. Cool, that, that's awesome. So you've uh, you've got an EP in the works, right? I think it's coming out in a couple weeks. Yes. Um, I have an instrumental EP called Elegy that's coming out on March 12th. And I've heard it. It's amazing. It's great. I love the uh, the atmospheric quality to your music. Like it's, you have, you know, pop elements, you know, vocally with your melodic choices. But texturally, it's like very meditative. Uh, I just, I really enjoy listening to it whenever Thank we you. work together, so. You know, it's meditative for me to create. It's kind yeah. of like, that's the process, that's my meditation. And I think what comes out of it, you know, it's nice to hear that that's how it landed with you as well. Oh yeah, no, I I really enjoy it, so. But, uh, so yeah, we don't really know each other other than working together. Let's go back to like how you got into music. What was the beginning like? Did you grow up in a musical family? So... I wouldn't say I really grew up in a super musical family, but my dad did, my dad is a, he's a good singer and he's really musical. And he sang to me when I was younger, he sang to me five songs every night, the same five songs. And then we sang the whole way to school every day, which was about a 15 minute drive. And um, I, I took piano lessons and I sang in the chorus. So I was, I was musical. I had a little, before I got the piano, I had a little Casio that I played that had like beats in it. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, I took to a it? pretty. No, I, I don't, I don't think we do. God, I, I kind of wish I did. Maybe it's at my parents somewhere. Yeah, so I, I took to music really quickly, and I, I started playing guitar when I was in high school, and I really wanted, you know, I was into folk music. I really wanted to play that kind of music. So that's what I did for a while. When did you start to transition into 
Were you recording your own music in high school or were you working with other people? When did you take oh, on the God, role? Oh, no. So of I was like, you know, I was musical, but I really didn't have like all the pieces together to to be an artist, you know, really leave an impression musically with people, if that makes sense. You know, I was so self conscious and just, you know, I was all over the place. I was a real, you know, teenager. Um, so <laughs> I didn't consider music as a career path. Um, I went to college for psychology and then I got a job. I did a bunch of different jobs. I was a ski instructor up at Whiteface where I'm from. I was a waiter. I ended up working with kids who were in foster care. And then I got a master's in social work. I was a social worker and I worked in uh, the criminal justice system in New York City, advocating for criminal defendants at a public defender's office, which I never talk about. It's like, I don't want to say it's like it never happened because the experiences all stayed with me and it's part of who I am, but I don't really talk about it much. And throughout that time, I was playing gigs and doing open mic nights and songwriter circles and that kind of thing. So it was always like simmering. And I always had this feeling like I there's a life in music for me, but I remember when I would tell people back then, like, I'm going to, I want to quit my job and do music, like, without fail, every person would be like, oh, I don't, they'd be like, what's your plan B? I don't think so. <laughs> um, so I don't think I, you know, I hadn't really found my niche musically or, you know, as an artist at that point. So I was, I was doing that. I actually had a band. I put, I, I did some records that were produced by other producers and I had varying levels of happiness throughout that process. Um, <laughs> so I was never about right. Yeah, I, I was never really happy with with what I was creating. I felt pretty insecure most of the time when I was with the band. I had problems expressing myself. I just really wasn't. And some of the it wasn't coming together for me internally, but some of the music I think sounded good. People liked it, but it was kind of like Americana. Okay. Kind of folky. And then I think it was like 2012, I was in a songwriting class with Tony Kniff, who's a songwriting coach in New York. Um, And he's a good friend of mine now. I took a lot of workshops with him and they were songwriter circles. And I remember he said, why don't you learn how to use GarageBand and Logic so that you can create your own demos and get, you know, more control over your, your writing and your arrangements, you know, he proposed it kind of as like a songwriting tool, but also as something to help me get more, I'm not thinking the right word, but almost more skilled um, in terms of like arranging my own songs or leading a band. Right. You know, he thought maybe if I could create demos the way I wanted them to sound and then could present it to my band, then I would have a better experience than what I was having, which is me kind of describing it, but not very clearly and then not liking what I heard. I think uh, translating thought into music has got to be the hardest thing. I mean, even now to this day, I mean, I, I get mixed notes from people and the words that I would use and the words that they would use just never match up. And, you know, I can imagine telling a band what's in your head if it's not obvious has got to be super hard. It's really hard. And it's really, I think it ends up being frustrating on both sides if people aren't just kind of in sync naturally. Yeah. And I also think I didn't really know what I wanted. That was part of my issue. Um, 
So I actually was like, no, I don't want to learn how to use GarageBand. I don't want to deal with a computer. I hate electronics, which wasn't, I don't know why I was saying that really. <laughs> because I've always been not like someone who like loves electronics, but I've never been some, I'm, I've always been kind of good at tech or pick that stuff up pretty quickly. Anyway, he was like, I'm sitting you down and teaching you, you know, like it wasn't an option. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that because, you know, he challenged me to start making some demos and stuff. And the I made a demo in GarageBand and it was called Gray White December. It's actually a song I ended up putting out just the, as the demo as is. Oh, and nice. it was like, just felt, I was so much happier with it. And it was all messed up. You know, like the, I was singing, I think I was singing into the laptop. Everything was out of tune. The MIDI instruments were like the garage band MIDI instruments. And they were like, <laughs> they were like, um, like they had these reverbs on them. I couldn't turn off. It was just that it was kind of out of control and unruly and had a lot of problems. And yet I liked the way it sounded like so much better than anything I'd done before. There was a, uh, I was, I was clicking around and, and reading some articles and checking your website out. And there was, there was something in one of the articles that I found where you said basically that you said that the first time you really started to record yourself is when it felt like you were actually making the music that you wanted to make. Yeah. So it must've been like such a freeing moment of like, oh, oh. my God, there it is. It, 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 it came out. It finally came out. It was amazing. And, and like I said, I couldn't have described that, which is, that's when I realized, no wonder I haven't had, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to make. It's, it's, yeah. I, and I still, you know, like, the music that I make is just like what gets channeled through me, not to sound like grandiose, but it's never, you know, if I'm like, I'm going to sit down and write a pop song, something really catchy, like I might end up with something totally different at the end of the day. <laughs> and that's just what it is. So I think sort of cutting out the middleman of trying to say what I'm trying to do has been helpful for me. That's good. There is definitely, it is a skill in this world to be able to sit down and say, I'm going to write this style of music and then have that come out. Most artists can't do that. It's like, it becomes like a behind the glass. Like I have friends that can obviously sit down. You're like, we need a country song. And they, they blast out a country song. But I've worked with artists that'll try to do that. And uh, it at the end of the day, they're like, does this sound like a pop song? I'm, I'm like, it does not sound like a pop song. It's really interesting. Like, it's great. I really love it. It sounds like you it's for you. It's not for somebody else. So it's like, I think it's more valuable to have your own voice like that though. It's definitely, um, I'm more valuable. That's interesting. It's definitely kind of exciting because you don't know where it's going to go. And I've been pleasantly <laughs> surprised. Like sometimes what I come up with is like kind of, I don't want to say better than what I would have imagined, but more interesting and more unique. I don't know. I am working on trying to have both abilities, you know, the ability to be kind of intentional and do what I set out to do. And I feel like it's been easier for me when I'm collaborating with people to do that. You know, I linked up with um, two other producers to make some songs specifically to pitch for sync. And it was like kind of specific. Here's what we're trying. Here's what we're pitching it for. Here's the, the show. Here's what it's like. We want it to sound like these artists. And I had a little, I actually had more success for the first time recently. So we'll see where that goes. That's cool. Yeah. So you started in GarageBand. You're you're learning learning how everything works. So you you're probably at this point benefiting from a little bit of the uh, I don't know what they would call it, but I'm going to make something up. And we're going to call it uh, like newbie brain, where you just do whatever you want. Yes, right? 
I feel like I still have it. That's the good good. thing. Like, not knowing the correct way to do things. There was no like preset rules. Like, oh no, no, I have to break the rules that I know are right. I didn't know anything, so I just did all sorts of random stuff. So yeah, there were like these happy, you know, mistakes or whatever things that turned out cool because really I just didn't know how to how to do it the right way. Happy accident, happy mistake is a, a phrase that comes up, and I feel like a lot of people say that, I know you're a big Ableton user, that Ableton kind of allows you to still have those like strangely creative moments more so than like GarageBand, particularly Pro Tools. When you transitioned to Ableton, did you find that you just started to even go deeper into into these things? I think so. I think that Ableton is so wacky and makes it so easy to do wacky stuff Yeah, that, you know, just the way of creating stuff in there, you don't have to really go out of your way to have some like odd, unexpected thing happen. Yeah, no, it's, it's the best. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. What's your, we've kind of completely bailed off of your origin story here, but uh, what's your creative process like right now? Like if you're sitting down to do a new track, how do you start? Uh, Let's see. Let me think about these last tracks I've done. You know, for the instrumental ones that are are just coming out now, they were really like, there was no thought process. It was all just kind of like intuitive, meditative, like just kind of playing around late at night with different sounds or different ideas. And they just kind of formed and then they were formed and that was it. It was very kind of like, you know, organic. I didn't edit them a ton. It all happened in Ableton and... um probably almost everything was in the box like midi or something that started as midi with the exception of my vocals which you know as you know like even in the instrumentals were kind of ambient and like embedded so yeah so i do a lot of my like most creative stuff in ableton cool and in ableton live 11 there is which just came out there's a vocal comping feature which is like a big deal finally right yeah but I'm accustomed to using logic for vocals because of comping. And then also because I think like uh, external plugins seem like they work better in logic without like maxing out the CPU. I don't know if that's true or that's just how it's worked for me. And then I've also found that when I'm doing a mix, even if it's a rough mix, like to send you or whatever it is, I just... I've had better luck in logic. I don't know if luck is the right word. I've had better results. So anyway, but then often once I, it's kind of labor intensive, I print all the tracks, import them to logic, and then I play around, do vocals. But then sometimes, you know, especially on some of the other songs that'll be coming out later this year, I'm like, this sounds cool, but it's not special. So I have to go back to Ableton. I kind of just go back and forth between the two and it really... Not not very efficient way. Uh, whatever. But whatever it's a works, system. Right? But it, it works. It, it does work. No, I know everybody also has like their weird 
systems that might not be the most efficient, but it works for them. And so that's been working for me. Yeah. Well, it's all about the end product. If you know, if you can do creative additional production stuff in Ableton faster, well, and it takes you 20 minutes to bounce out a couple extra stems and put it back in there, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, it could take you three times as long to do that in Logic and you totally. get your inspiration tools. So I'm all for, that's why the tools are here. Everybody can use them for their own thing. And that's kind of the best part. I was just talking to somebody. When you approach using everything with no rules and you let people do whatever they want, it's, you know, it's what makes everything unique. And it's when everybody yes. starts copying everything, it's all sounds the same, you know? No, that's true. And there's like infinite ways to do things. Exactly. Which is what's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many people that are super successful with no formal training. They do exactly what they want to do. And they've kind of created this palette of just crazy sounds that people are used to hearing whatever, you know? Yeah, I do think listeners have a much broader palette than in the past. Yeah. And um, yeah, nothing. it seems like nothing's off limits. And I'm grateful for that because... I've noticed that when I'm creating something, part of my issue in my pre-electronic era was just that I was kind of bored with what I was doing with the sounds available, no matter how good the players were that I hired or whatever. I think I wanted to hear these otherworldly sounds. You know, I, I've always yeah. had this like really active imagination. Like, you know, there's a lot of sides to it. It's a really active imagination. It can manifest as anxiety, you know, like really vivid anxiety. It seems like it's all all part of the same thing. And I feel like once I started experimenting with sounds that were not, you know, in the natural world necessarily, like they, were, right. they sounded more otherworldly. Um, and they were, you know, I used technology that that satisfied my imagination much more. That's what it's for. So... You do some sound design stuff for Ableton. Mm -hmm. What does all that entail? Or were you doing like beta testing and designing stuff for Eleven and coming up with sounds? Did you work on that at all? I did. So I did it for Eleven and for Ten. Most of it has been designing MIDI presets, okay, uh, synth presets mostly, but also sometimes like drum racks and other instrument racks. It's really fun. It's challenging and fun, and it's a good. Again, it's a good use of my imagination. Also, I think I've had some, it's hit or miss, but I've had some good results because I am open-minded because I don't have a background in that. So I yeah. think that I've come up with some interesting sounds. That's cool. I don't think I would I would make very good sounds. I, I, there's too many rules. I follow too many rules. You have a lot of rules. That's why you're so good my, at what you do. I mean, but- <laughs> My it, presets would be really boring. <laughs> It's so interesting because I, I think that mine are interesting, but sometimes they don't really make any sense. If they get rejected, it's like, this doesn't this doesn't make sense. Um, I actually wanted to share with you that, you know, Life Breath is the second track on the EP that we just did. Yeah. And um, if you look in Live 11, if you go to Ableton and download the free packs that are available accompanying Live 11, there's one called Drone Lab. And in Drone Lab, there's a preset that's called Life Breath. And that's something I created for them kind of in tandem while I was making this, my song that's called Life Breath. So, awesome. you know, one of the really kind of prominent drone sounds in the track is the instrument Life Breath. That's a, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's, it's actually been kind of a cool feedback loop with, um, 
with my artist side, the sound design, because that's they awesome. inform each other. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I guess that's kind of the perfect time to uh, to design a sound is when you're creating for yourself and you can just save it and like, yeah, I'm going to go back and revisit this. What's that process? I'm, I've never done any like preset design work. What's that process like? So it sounds like you submit a bunch of sounds and then they tell you, oh, we really love, you know, these 25. Can you do some more like that? Is that kind of the, yeah, the vibe there? They usually tell us what they're looking for. Okay. So like when I made the drone sounds, a bunch of those I made, I knew it was specifically for a drone pack. So I was really in the zone, you know, okay. thinking that way, which was cool. Yeah. Um, but often, yeah, like you said, I get a sound where I want it and I'm enjoying playing it because that's yeah. the most important thing. You know, the Ableton wants their sounds to inspire the music maker to create a song just the minute they start playing it. Right. So I, it has to be kind of fun to play. And then once I have the basic idea, then I try to figure out what the, the parameters, the macros should be and, you know, do all of that more technical stuff. Right afterwards. Yeah. Afterwards, and that kind of takes. That's like the the part that takes a little while, because um, the the macros are ideally kind of they might combine more than one parameter and have like a cool, interesting name. Right. Like one of the knobs, it might say space, but really that's like a combination of the dry wet on the reverb and the maybe like the maybe the dry wet on the delay or like the feedback. But then setting the parameters within those, like it's really only between like 5% and 80% or whatever, that part's a little bit labor intensive. That's cool. Okay, so let's go back to you're learning how to use GarageBand. Oh, yeah. And now you're, you're designing presets for Ableton. So obviously a lot of things happened in there. Yes. Um, so you obviously, you loved GarageBand and you, you must have just, dove into just yes. learning all of this stuff because you're building these sounds. So you understand the concepts. Yeah, I loved it. And I started using Logic a lot and um, I made it like tons of demos. I just was like working around the clock, making making the demos because I was like a cave person with fire. I was just so excited. And um, I brought the stuff to a producer engineer named Jason Cummings in New York City. And he mixed a bunch of stuff for me. And I was like, oh, this sounds like a real, this sounds like real music. <laughs> and I started studying mixing and production so I could learn more about, you know, having my music that I was making sound real on my own. And at some point I realized I was going to, you know, I was playing live shows. I had started this project called I Am Snow Angel. That's kind of when I started using that moniker is when I started doing the electronic stuff and producing it myself. So I started thinking, I guess I'm going to have to play some I Am Snow Angel shows. And I was terrified and I didn't want to do it, but I was like, I knew I had to. And so my manager, Patrick Ermelich, he said, I know the person to teach you. Her name's Erin Barra. So oh, yeah, Aaron. I started, you know, I started working with Erin one-on-one and I studied with her like in private lessons and you know, she would come to like my rehearsals and my gigs. We worked together for about a year pretty intensively. She like, she really got me up to speed quickly. And I was also very hungry for, for all of the knowledge, Ableton and um, how to translate my music to a live setting. But then also once I started using Ableton, at first 
first it was a tool to play live. And then I realized how much I could do in it, you know, production wise and songwriting wise. Yeah, she's an Ableton master. So that's that's how you got uh, deep into Ableton. Yeah, she's an Ableton master and she's also a master teacher. She is. And that's really a special combination. She's really, <laughs> yeah, I'm really grateful. So your live show, is it just you? Usually. Mm-hmm. Nice. So lots of looping and, and building things. Do you use a push or anything like that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I use the push. And then I've had all different like incarnations of it. Um, sometimes I've had other synths on stage. I usually have a Telecaster. I had like this really crazy lighting. It wasn't that crazy, but it was crazy for me because of the way that I went about it. I MIDI mapped the lights to like every beat of music, the light as and the the lights and the color, like what they were doing and what color they were. So I had these like four light bars that I brought with me to shows for a long time. That's great. Yeah, it was really fun. It is really fun. I think you're downplaying your embrace of technology. Earlier, you kind of you were like, I like technology, but I'm not really into it. But it sounds like you understand technology a lot. I I do. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. You know, I think it's a little bit of like a God, like, I don't, internalized sex roles, like gender roles, something that, um, I don't know. I think that if I were raised as a boy, I probably would have been just like, oh, yeah, I'm a tech geek. But, like, I kind of downplayed it or whatever. I don't know. It's that that unfortunate uh, stereotype growing up that uh, boys like electronics and computers. and Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I was always a nerd, like I'm also like a, nerd. a math nerd. <laughs> um, I couldn't really deny that. But the tech part of things, I think I did really downplay. And it's nice to, I, I guess maybe I still downplay it a little bit, but I am into it. If you talk to me, you can <laughs> glean that. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to ask, what was the big catalyst to really just to do music full on? to stop doing your other job, which you had master's degrees for? Like, how did you end up just a musician? So I had been transitioning. I was transitioning from like the social work by day, musician at night to a full music career. And again, for a while, I couldn't figure out how I was going to do it. I actually stopped doing the social work job and I was teaching guitar and singing and I was tutoring like kids for tests and stuff. This was back in like... 2011. And then eventually, you know, I started doing this thing called female frequency, which is something I started with a couple other women in New York. The whole point of it was to help women produce our own music from start to finish. So Danny Marie, who now goes by Primitive Heart, she goes by both names. um, She's a singer songwriter producer in New York. She sent an email out. I don't remember what year it was. Maybe it was 2014, to women in music, to the email list in New York City, which has like a lot of people on it, mostly women, some men, saying that she was looking for a female producer to work with. And I think I was like the only person who wrote back. You know, I don't know if there were fewer women doing production, you know, five, six years ago, seven years ago, or if there was just less visibility. I'm not sure. But anyway, we met and that was kind of like remarkable that she hadn't got a lot, gotten a lot of responses. And she had the idea, wouldn't it be cool to make an album that's just all women personnel from start to finish through like the mastering, the artwork, the in- instrumentation, everything. So we did a fundraiser and we did that. Cool. 
anyway, I brought that up. It was cool. It was a lot of fun and very empowering. And we got a lot of visibility. And then after that, people started approaching me to produce their records for them, other women. So that was a really great bridge for me. And then I realized, oh, I can have a career in this. And then I, um, <laughs> I started doing stuff for Ableton and I made a splice pack and I've had, you know, different opportunities that have started to amount to, you know, a career that is also a livelihood. Yeah. It's always kind of been like this, but more so now I feel like musicians have to do everything. When I went to LA in 2006, like I thought, I'm just going to be an engineer. I'm going to do this thing. I don't think I would ever tell a kid to do that, to think that they were going to do one thing. You know, it's like, if you want to be a producer, you should also learn how to record your music. You should also learn to play P like a couple instruments, learn how to write lyrics. Like you, you have to do everything to a certain extent now. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that's kind of an old school thing where someone's like, I'm the producer. I don't know how to use any technology and I don't play the instruments, but I'm here to produce. But I know that was actually a thing that like, you know, that person was like, I've got the grand vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've always felt like as a woman, I should know how to do as much as possible because I felt like sometimes I've been underestimated. So it's kind of like, Sometimes when I learn something, it's because I just feel like I want to have as many skills as I can. That was part of the mixing thing, which I haven't been mixing any of these last several many songs. Um, but when a client comes to me, I do usually mix the mix the the music, um, like the final mixes. And at that part of that for me was I knew that a lot of producers were producing and mixing, and I wanted to yeah. say you can just come to me and I'll do the same thing. Yeah, there's so many producers are, are amazing, amazing mixers. And I think um, it's when you lose perspective, like you, like your your project, you're, you're doing the whole thing. You know, it's like you can you can get lost in it. But I think my hardest and longest mixes are tracks that I've been involved with from the beginning. So much worse. It's so much harder because all perspective is gone. That's gone. And, you know, I have to say when I'm working with a client and... You know, they oftentimes have great ideas or they started the demo and we took it from there. It's so much easier because um, even the production is so much easier. It's so much more efficient because we bounce ideas back and forth. Yeah. And the mixing process is so much better. And they say here, I wanted to sound like this song. And um, with my own stuff, it's like the production takes forever. I get lost <laughs> in it. And then if I try to mix it, sometimes what happens is I, I mix it until I destroy it. I've done it. Do you know I've what I mean? It. Like I'm, I, I just keep going until there's like nothing salvageable, <laughs> and I have I can either go back like you know two hundred versions, you know, save versions back to the session where it was like last functional, or I just abandon it because I'm I'm like disgusted with it. Being a a solo artist as well, so you're not even collaborating with bandmates. So it's it's just you. I just find like to write to produce to record it, to do the sound design, to build all the parts, to mix it. I, it's just so daunting. It's impressive. So congrats for, oh, for being able to do all that. You know, it's a monstrous task. It, yeah, it is monstrous. I wanted to go back to female frequency a little bit. Is it still active, the, the collective? So it is still active. I think um, for me, I've, I have mixed feelings because I haven't stayed as involved as like I, as I'd want to, uh, 
partly because I started getting work and only have so much time. And I put it towards, you know, these albums I was making with clients and my own stuff. Right. Female Frequency is still active. Uh, Pre-pandemic, we were hosting events, live events and workshops. And we had a lot of great classes for women, like how to do live sound or how to, um, how to loop using pedals or, you know, all different things. And, you know, there's a lot of other organizations that are out there that we've partnered with. One of them is called Sound Girls. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's really, it was started by Carrie Keys, who is a really great, I believe, front of house engineer for Pearl Jam and a lot of other bands. We partnered with them for a lot of events and some of them are actually still taking place online. If you go to femalefrequency.com, I think that's the right, I should know the website. I think that's it. Um, you can learn more. And also I've noticed that over the last five to seven years, a lot of different organizations have started to emerge that are more um, female-centric. In your experience, do you find a lot of girls coming to these live sound things like more so than you expected when you guys first started or when you girls first started? Yes, <laughs> you gals. Um, yeah, you gals yes, first started. I feel like women came out of the woodwork. That's awesome. From the beginning, from the very first female frequency event we had, whenever there's a workshop or a class, there are tons of participants. It's not hard to find interest. And I also think there were a lot of women out there producing who just hadn't connected yet with each other. I think that like the virtual space and the the real space of production has been very male oriented and intimidating for a long time. And I think that part of it was about just visibility, just letting people connect with each other and be visible. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely see a lot more groups sprouting up and also, you know, things for, for young, young girls, like, um, like beats by girls. I guess. And I mean, I don't, I can't really speak to this cause I'm, a male in the music industry, but do you feel like part of the issue is that like, it's it, like you mentioned visibility, which makes me think of this because when you think of producers, you, you think of like, uh, like historically it's a lot of male names that people are seeing, um, that have been put forward. Do you think that's part of the issue is that young girls just don't see female names traditionally on records, obviously a lot more now. I think so. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, even I remember when I met Aaron, I was like, oh, like something clicked for me that I can really, I could, I saw what she was doing and I saw that she really owned it. Yeah. Even just like me taking so long to stumble my way into production and engineering and sound design, it took quite a while because I, it hadn't even occurred to me that I would be on the, like the producer side of things because right. I think because I didn't, yeah, I didn't see other women doing it. It just didn't really like compute for me. Yeah. No, I think, um, I guess it goes back to what you're seeing when you're, you know, when you're young and, and impressionable of like, you know, everybody, I want to be an astronaut or, or I want to be a whatever, you know, when you're a little kid and when you unfortunately, you know, like 20, 20, 25 years ago when, you know, we were younger, you weren't seeing that. But I think now, I know in my experience, I've seen a lot more female producers and a lot more super successful writers who are amazing vocal compers and can jump on the Pro Tools rig in like a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to see that 
I think it's going to be different. You're going to have this era of women more out front and hopefully like girls will have, they'll have the inspiration and they'll have people to look to now that I feel like things are starting to, you know, break through. I think so too. But I wanted to ask you, since we're kind of on, on the topic, do you have like one or two like big tips that you would give to a girl that wants to get into production or wants to, to get into engineering or to dive into one of these things that they might feel is not supposed to be for them? Mm. I think the first tip would be about having a mentor. And I think, you know, I definitely take a chance to mentor uh, young women when I can or artists who are learning production. Although it doesn't necessarily have to be like a female mentor. It could be anyone. But anyway, um, (laughs) you know, having a mentor that will like kind of show you the ropes it goes a long way. So that's one thing. My other advice I think would be, I don't know if this is really very clear advice, but like, don't worry about messing up or not doing it right. You know, that might be, it's easy to learn the rules. Like that, that'll come. That's not, I I think people shouldn't get hung up, you know, let their creativity be squelched by like fear of messing up or feel like I don't know, I don't, know how to do it well enough to really make anything. I have to learn more first. Like, I think everything I've learned, I've just stumbled into and I've learned it as I go. You know, like if somebody asked me to do a job and I don't know how to do it, I just say, sure, I'll do it. And then the worst case is, you know, well, I generally just learn how to do it while I'm doing it. Or if that's really impossible, then like I won't get paid and they'll hire someone else. It's not, you know, (laughs) so I, I don't know. Not everyone would maybe agree with that, but I just think there's a very, these are stereotypes, but in my experience, there's a female way of communicating that I have had a lot. I've experienced myself and I don't know that I do it quite as much anymore, but some of it I still do. And it's, um, sometimes it's kind of like apologetic, like, oh, I don't want to mess it up. I'm sorry. It's like almost from a place of like, being considerate, but it's interpreted as insecure. Anyway, I felt like when I was starting to be in studios, the producers or engineers I work with who were men, they were like, oh, I can do it. I'm really good at that. And they probably, like, maybe they were, not necessarily. They were they were lying. Sometimes, or maybe they thought yeah. they were really good at it, but there was a lot of confidence. So anyway, m- my advice isn't to to espouse the male communication style or whatever that communication <laughs> style is. I could, I shouldn't call it male, um, but not to exude false confidence where there isn't, but just, you know, to try to let go of the fear of messing up or not being good enough. No, I agree. That's amazing advice just across the board. There's like a level, I, I know something that I fight with is perfectionism. And that's like, you know, like an extreme example of what you're talking about where, you know, you don't want to do something unless you can do it perfectly. And I think that that holds so many people back. And whether too. you want to do it perfectly or you're just nervous about making a mistake, it's it's still rooted in the same thing. Right. And um, the only way to learn is to make mistakes and to try different things. And you never know where you're going to end up. Exactly. Yeah. And then the, the confidence thing, it, to me, yes, I, I agree there is a... A fa- like people with a false confidence uh, or like a, a forced confidence drive me crazy. <laughs> but there is a level of 
confidence that I think anybody coming up in any industry needs to like just force upon themselves because you obviously you made it into a room whatever whatever the gig is right you were good enough to get in there in the first place so now that you're in there I mean you should assume the role of like hey I'm good enough to get in here yes that person over there might be more talented than me in x, x y and z but I'm here because I'm good at abc so like let's just make a record and I think that people need to remember that you know you can't be perfect at everything but you still have to be confident in your skill set you know Yes. Yes. It's really like believing in yourself and whatever, and that yeah. you're going to bring, you're bringing something valuable to the table. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's not and about you, perfection. Perfectionism is like a, that's been an issue for me as well. And it's like the enemy of creativity. I feel like. Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. I can, I can, I could go on for like three hours about perfectionism <laughs> and what it, what it has prevented me from doing. In, well, in I'm not, I mean, you're very, uh, detail-oriented and precise. And I think that's the the flip side of that is the mental torture of perfectionism. <laughs> I guess so. I guess, I guess so. That is true. So um, you mentioned earlier that you became a mother just before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So A, congrats. Thank and you. Also B, congrats for surviving through the pandemic oh. <laughs> as, a, as a new mother. Um, what has that done for your creativity and your time balance and your music career? Have you found balance? Have you had to fight? I mean, it's definitely had an effect. Um, first, just on my creativity, it's actually been really transformative. You know, I've had like a surge of creativity. Nice. Um, accompanied by very little time <laughs> to, to work <laughs> on it. You know, it's like, it's an interesting combination. So most of the pandemic, you know, I've had kind of, very, very part-time childcare and not, not reliable childcare. And it's also this weird time where things are canceled and it's not, there's these constant judgment calls about like what's safe to do. And I found yeah. being a mom, you know, all of that. It's like being a new mom is already kind of a heightened state of vigilance at least it has been in my case so then add this global pandemic on top of it and it's it's uh it's been an interesting experience i have been feeling creative as i said as far as the time management i actually am finally learning to manage my time my creative time better and it took this extreme situation for me to do it you know back Four years ago, I was constantly struggling, just up all night, just working around the clock, not efficient, couldn't walk away from things, would just pick at them, you know, mixes or productions, and then have to throw the whole night's work away. Just Right. And I envied people who um, could kind of work in a more measured way. Um, but I didn't, I was kind of like in almost an addict mindset, if that makes That's sense. Um, yeah, that, I've never heard that before, but that I that really sums it up. Yeah, it's really, really go down the rabbit hole and you can't get out. Yeah. And, you know, I, being a mom, I don't have that kind of time. I can't stay up all night and then feel all like strung out when I'm trying to take care of my toddler. And I actually am finally kind of doing those things that people had always said to do. I actually got some really good tips from 
uh, Damien on the producer network. Um, oh yeah, love Damien. He really like took the time to to chat with me about it, and just you know I'm doing things more now. Like I work on something, I have an hour, I work on it, and then I take a break and I go and you know give Joe lunch and play with him, put him down for the nap, or whatever, and then I come back and I have another hour and I work on it again. And that time away from whatever I'm doing is actually more valuable than me sitting there trying to work on it for that time. I don't know if that is rings true for you, but I'm using my time differently. And somehow the time that I'm not working is also helping me. Yeah, I agree completely. I I take a lot more breaks. I used to sit for like four or five straight hours oh, and then remember too. that I was supposed to eat. And uh, now I try to just for health reasons, just stand up every hour. Yeah. But um, yeah, I totally agree. Like walking away, if, if I feel like I'm doing something drastic to a mix, it's just like save clothes, walk down the street for 15 minutes and come back. And you're like, oh, it was fine. I was about to go down the rabbit hole. Yes. So, Exactly. Obviously, I don't have to go put a kid down or feed a baby or anything, but... Well, that's... I needed this thing, you know, because I didn't have the willpower to get up. I used to sit, yeah. yeah, for hours, not get up and eat, not go to the bathroom. I would just be sitting there, like, in this kind of flow, this, like, deep flow that was, like, I would lose time. Like, I'd look at the clock, yeah. I'd be like, what happened? And I think maybe, like, when I was really getting into production to learn so much so quickly, I really benefited from those, like long rabbit hole sessions because I just feel that. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's just something I'm telling I, myself. I think so. I would argue that very few useful things happen after like 12 or 13 hours in the studio. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, it takes, because music is kind of addictive. Like you said, like the addictive mindset is, is such a good phrase to use. I was addicted to work until I met my wife. And once I realized that there was something else that I could be doing, that was equally as enjoyable because that's the problem when your when your job and your livelihood is like your favorite thing to do. Yes, you can't you you can't stop no. right. You just have to keep doing it. I know people. I know, but this is one of the few professions where this is like a real thing. Like, there's all these these memes on Instagram where they'll be like, it'll be like a skeleton over the computer, and it'll be like just one more tweet to the mix. <laughs> To the mix. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, I don't know, it's a stereotype, but it's actually true because it is really enjoyable. It's kind of enjoyable and addictive. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, maybe like a digital artist, somebody in Photoshop could really tweak like that. But if you're an actor, I mean, once the shoot is over or you're done re reading your lines, like it's over. <laughs> right. Right. You know? <laughs> so yeah, music's, uh, it's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, really. So, mm -hmm. But well, this has been a ton of fun. I have one last question uh, that I always close with, and that is, uh, what right now is your biggest goal, personal or musical or whatever it is that you're willing to share? And do you know what the next smallest thing you're going to do to go towards that goal is? Hmm. I think my next goal is kind of like an ongoing goal, but it's to keep creating through every cycle of my process. So as you know, I've got what's looking like three EPs coming out this year. And um, I've also got some clients coming my way again. My, my work is starting to pick up again. Typically, I would stop writing my own songs during this time. I would stop 
or I'd be inclined to stop writing my own songs and just kind of shut down my creative mind and do kind of like the PR for the records and work on the client stuff and go into this other mode and, um, and then kind of feel depressed. So I would say that my goal is to keep like the songwriting creative side of me going throughout this time, throughout this year, even if I'm writing stuff that isn't going to go on any of these records, even if I'm just making demos, they don't go anywhere. Um, I want to keep that like fresh creative part of my mind happening, if that makes sense. Totally. Because that's a very different part of my mind than the one that's like, you know, organizing what tracks are going on with GP and like reaching out to blogs and pitching for sync, all those other things. And it's also different from the the client work, which is really, I'm working for them. It's, yeah. I can be creative, but if they're like, I hate it, <laughs> it's gone, you know, whatever they want is what we do. So, um, so the next thing I'm going to do towards that is either tonight or tomorrow, um, I'll write a song. It's awesome. Do you have times of the day that you're more creative? Or that you get into like your creative zone? You know, I did read once and I've kind of stuck to this, that if I have something nitpicky to do, like comping a vocal or doing a bunch of edits, I should do it in the morning. If I have more creative work, like writing a song or just doing something crazy with the synths and it doesn't need to be edited that night, at that time, I do that at night. Cool. Nice. Yeah. I'm kind of the, I'm, I'm the opposite. Really? Yeah, I do. I, well, I just feel like, I guess I'm just sharper in the morning. And then I feel like I'm I'm less creative as I get tired. Oh. But I also, I'm weird. I get up early, so. But I think I'm sharper. I mean, I think I'm more detail-oriented in the morning. That's why I have to do yeah. that stuff. But I think I'm more creative at night when I am tired. Mm-hmm. Less barriers. Yes. Just kind of want Just, what, just, just flailing around and sometimes things get like messed up and I make one of those mistakes and it's actually better than what I would have come up with. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Do you want to tell people uh, websites or socials where they can find the record or where they can find you to work with you? Sure. My website is IamSnowAngel.com. You can find my music on any of the music platforms. Just search for I Am Snow Angel. It's all four words. And I'm on social media and you can just reach out to me any of those places. Well, thank you for taking the time. This has been great. Look forward to uh, getting this out there for people. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that's it for episode 31. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider taking 20 seconds to drop a review or share it with a friend. The growth of the show lately has been really overwhelming. So thank you so much for sharing it and talking about it. And uh, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. Come hang out with us there and I'll see you next week.